Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Bird. Tonight, as Randy Bachman gets set to celebrate a milestone birthday, he's resurrected Bachman-Turner Overdrive with a tour, new music, and some rare finds from nearly five decades ago, all that to be released soon. And he joins me to tell us all about taking care of business after six decades in rock and roll. NASA astronaut Frank Rubio is heading back to Earth after more than a year on the International Space Station, longer than any American astronaut in history. And it comes as space agencies look at longer and longer missions, including to the moon and to Mars. So what impact does that kind of time and space have on the body and the mind? We find out. Canada's UN Ambassador Bob Ray delivered his speech at the General Assembly in New York today with several diplomatic storms swirling around the country right now, including the welcoming of a former Nazi soldier during Ukrainian President Zelensky's visit to Parliament in Ottawa on Friday, and a deep freeze in Canada-India relations with allegations that India was involved in the murder of a Canadian Sikh activist in BC in June. We get the Ambassador's thoughts on both those very big challenges. But first, the Speaker of the House, Anthony Rota, resigned today after having extended that invitation to the former Nazi soldier to attend President Zelensky's address to Parliament. Friends of Simon Wiesenthal are asking for ways to make sure it never happens again. The organization's president and CEO, Michael Levitt, is with me to explain. Let's begin in Ottawa, where the inevitable, what seemed inevitable yesterday, became reality today. It's with a heavy heart that I rise to inform members of my resignation as Speaker of the House of Commons. That was Anthony Rota, the Speaker of the House of Commons today, resigning uh, over his invitation of a man who fought for the Nazis to address to an address by Ukraine's President Zelensky last Friday. Uh, the man in question was a constituent, Yaroslav Hunka, a 98-year-old. Uh, what exactly happened, we don't exactly know, but he's faced calls from across the political spectrum, or did today, including from his own party. I mean, as the Speaker, he's actually independent, but of course he was elected as a Liberal MP uh, after, again, after he announced Yaroslav after he not only welcomed Yaroslav Hunka in the House yesterday, but called him a Canadian hero. Uh, here's more from his resignation. That public recognition has caused pain to individuals and communities, including the Jewish community in Canada and around the world, in addition to survivors of Nazi atrocities in Poland, among other nations. Yeah, it's hard to uh, underestimate or overstate just how much of an impact this has had right around the world. Rota's resignation will take effect at the end of the sitting day tomorrow. MPs will have to elect a new speaker. That will happen on October the 3rd, as far as I know. Now, the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center, a Jewish rights group, has said Rota's actions have compromised 338 MPs and handed a propaganda victory to Russia. They're also calling on the Commons Procedure and House Affairs Committee to hold public hearings to investigate what took place and examine, quote, vetting process failures. Michael Levitt is the president and CEO of the Canadian Regional Office of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies. He's also a former Liberal MP for York Center, and he was the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Michael, thank you for your time tonight. Ben, I, I really appreciate you having me on on what is actually an incomprehensible issue to be dealing with in 2023. 
Yeah, tell me about your reaction because I know obviously we're heading we were heading into Yom Kippur, so a very important day yeah. on the calendar, and there was a lot going on. And all of a sudden, Friday, I think a lot of us were just sort of taken up in in Zelensky's visit. It was a big moment. It was sort of a celebratory atmosphere on Parliament Hill. You would know this from having been there for similar foreign state visits, um, foreign leader visits. But all of a sudden, this happens. What was what was how did how did everyone sort of begin to clue into what had just unfolded there? Well, it, it really wasn't till uh, later on in the weekend, until uh, kind of uh, uh, early in the morning on Sunday, that uh, that it became clear that that something um, very very ominous was afoot. And in fact, on on Friday night, I had the opportunity um, in Toronto to uh, go and and uh, meet President Zelensky, wow. uh, which I did. I'd met him in 2019 when he was here. At that point, as you mentioned, I was uh, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and I had the opportunity to to uh, to hear his remarks and actually meet him and uh, and and say a few words to him on on Friday night. So the last thing on my mind um, possible was that this could go from what I considered to be um, a very positive um, uh, exercise in diplomacy and in building support for Ukraine um, in Canada, in Ottawa, in Toronto. I, I just couldn't have imagined that it was um, uh, going to end up on this trajectory. But very quickly, as we started doing research and, and uh, realizing what had gone on, um, honestly, this disbelief and, um, you know, we now we end up where we are today, but with a lot of um, choppy water but since then till now. It is. I mean, for listeners to understand, because what happened in that part of Eastern Central Europe in the early 40s can sometimes, have been, first of all, once the Iron Curtain dropped, it wasn't much talked about. Uh, right. But what exactly were we celebrating on Friday that we, that we most certainly shouldn't have been? Well, I mean, again, we were we were uh, uh, celebrating Mr. Hunka's I, uh, you know, membership and and uh, activity in uh, what you know what is the Waffen SS, and this was a kind of volunteer Ukrainian SS um, uh, military uh, a group which carried out um, untold um, atrocities, including mass murder of Jews, of Poles, of other victims of the Holocaust. Um, definitely blood on the hands of these units, the, the Galicia um, uh, in particular. Um, you know, these were these were um, Nazis. These were these were Nazis. They they swore an allegiance to Hitler in order to join these units, and they were under the auspices of the SS. I mean, they're you know, it's uh, uh, it's just absolutely um, unthinkable that uh, that. The you know that an, an individual in, a, in with membership um, you know who was active in one of these units would stand up um, and you know uh, be be introduced among other things as a Canadian hero and I quote of the you know from the remarks uh, yeah. given um, a Ukrainian hero and a Canadian hero uh, was uh, you know uh, then Speaker Rhoda's remarks from the uh, um, from the chair. And as you pointed out, uh, and, and of course you know Speaker Rhoda, you 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 were served as a Liberal MP for many years. Uh, there was just no going back from this. I mean, I, I remember originally, of course, there was a demand for an apology that happened quite quickly, but then it became pretty clear that that this was not something that uh, would allow him to continue in the role, and that was certainly something that your organization uh, was calling for. 
it, it is, and and it pains me. Listen, um, Anthony Rhoda is a, a good and honest man. He's liked um, on both sides of the aisle by all the parties. He's been a very effective speaker. He's been fair in his handling of Parliament during some, you know, um, very choppy times on the on the floor of the House. But this is irredeemable. This is irredeemable. Um, and you know, he, he came forward on uh, on on Sunday. Uh, yes, on Sunday to uh, with an with an apology and an explanation. Um, he took responsibility of this all being on on him on his back. Uh, but as the fallout, um, the profound fallout of uh, the incident continued, not just um, in the halls of parliament, not just in Ottawa, in Canada, but globally, um, it became abundantly clear that this was um, one of the most significant stains on um, our venerable legislator that we've that we've seen in i mean a, a very very long time i'm sure someone uh with a with a, a, a greater grasp of the uh of uh of canada's house of commons might come up with something else but um having the house and prime minister and uh, uh honored guests including um uh, president Pre- president zelensky um stand up multiple times to to uh to laud uh, Mr. Hanka, uh, the only possible result was going to be for the speaker to step down, which he did, um, you know, and, and we welcomed that. He did that this afternoon, right at the beginning of question period. Yeah. I mean, the idea of President Zelensky, of course, who lost family in the Holocaust, who's Jewish, also doing it. I mean, it, it seemed it, it's almost bewildering what happened that day. It's hard to what it's hard to try to it's hard to because no one's really said what exactly happened. But it's hard to figure out how such an incredible mistake could have made other than just, I mean, pure ignorance to some extent, not asking questions, not Googling, not doing anything and just sort of assuming that not not being curious enough, perhaps, about who this person might have been or was. The, the fact of the matter is there can be no possible excuse. And uh, whatever systems failed uh, that's the reason that we've also um, asked for the Parliamentary Procedure and House Affairs Committee, known as PROC, one of the parliamentary committees made up of members of parliament. We've asked them to um, take this on board and uh, launch a hearing and an investigation into what happened in this case, uh, um, what the systems were, how they failed, and what we can do, Ben, to make sure that something like this never, ever happens again. Um, because, again, the ramifications are profound. Um, most disturbingly, we've seen the Russian propaganda machine go into high gear. Um, again, uh, you know, putting forth its odious narrative that they are denazifying uh, Ukraine. Um, I, I just a, a horrible framing and attempt at rationalizing an illegal and immoral invasion, um, uh, which is costing thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives, um, you know, absolutely odious. And uh, somehow this trip, which was meant to secure and, um, you know, uh, build up uh, the the bonds of friendship and allyship and support 
between Ukraine and Canada um, has now turned into uh, an absolute um, disaster. The net, you know, it's been completely sidetracked by um, the speaker, former speaker's actions on the floor that day. Michael, you pointed this out already. One of the big issues here is that it has allowed uh, those who would accuse Ukraine of sort of of Nazism, quote unquote, as you put it, such as Russia and its many proxies. We've seen them all on social media, I think, over the last 48 hours to sort of take hold of this to somehow create an equivalency of this. And it puts everybody in it. I mean, it's it, it it is really the stain, unfortunately, of all this, amongst many other things, is the idea that those who would use this for their own ends without any necessarily any any good intentions are in fact given this toehold to do it now. Yes, and and you know we've uh, we've seen concerns raised that this could put um, some kind of a wedge in the relationship between the Jewish and Ukrainian communities in Canada, and I have to tell you, Ben, Ivad so many calls and emails from friends in the Ukrainian community, um, from people, uh, you know, high up the food chain, um, who have expressed their absolute um, uh, disdain for what took place in the house. This has been a a, a very, very um, somber moment for so many of them, again, who were euphoric at having um, President Zelensky um, here in Canada, and I can tell you that you know the um, uh, the, the the Jewish community has been um, supportive and continues to be supportive of um, all efforts um, to uh, to assist and uh, and you know be allies with Ukraine in this in this battle that's not just about Ukraine; it's about democracy and freedom writ large in the face of Russian aggression. Um, my own organization that I represent, Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center, I was in the ground um, in Poland on the border at Medica, right on the Ukrainian border, um, last March, um, assisting uh, women and children fleeing Ukraine with nothing more than the, you know, the, than, than a, a bag and, and uh, the shoes on their feet. Mm-hmm. And we helped them over the border, helped find them uh, places to stay, um, shoes for the kids, uh, school bags for those that were going to be staying in Poland, um, being welcomed by families there. And um, we are fully committed um, to ensuring that that work continues. So again, um, a, a very difficult issue for all of us to deal with, but one will, that will not diminish um, the strong relationships that have been built and that are that are uh, you know that are being actioned in terms of supporting the Ukrainian people and uh, particularly um, President Zelensky, who's viewed by so many as a hero. Michael Levitt, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're very welcome, Ben, and I uh, really appreciate you having me on. It's tough to imagine that Canada's UN ambassador, Bob Ray, expected so much to be going on in the way of diplomatic challenges when he was first thinking about what his address to the UN General Assembly this year might contain. So today he got up and delivered his half-hour address to the UNGA. He covered many of the issues you'd expect him to cover, human rights, the fight against climate change, the war in Ukraine, um, 
uh, reconciliation here at home, as well as the the record wildfires we had this year, the ongoing problems in Haiti, the plight of refugees around the world, and more. But lurking in the background were a few major issues now dominating the agenda back home. First, the allegations by the Prime Minister eight days ago that India had a direct connection to the murder of a Sikh activist and separatist Harjit Nijar in BC in June, allegations that have thrown Canada's relations with India into a further downward spiral. Now, Ray did not address that issue directly, but he did have this to say about the broader issue of foreign interference. We cannot bend the rules of state-to-state relations for political expediency because we've seen and continue to see the extent to which democracies are under threat through various means of foreign interference. But the truth is, if we don't adhere to the rules that we've agreed to, the very fabric of our open and of our free societies may start to tear. They start to tear if we don't adhere to the rules, right? And that if, I mean, certainly the Indian media saw that as particularly targeted at India. Now, that may not be the case. Clearly, Canada has had its issues with foreign interference, specifically with China, but also with Russia and Iran. Uh, There are others. So this may not have been directed specifically at India, but the timing of it certainly suggested that India was part and parcel of the countries that he was speaking to today. Speaking during the same session just a little bit earlier, India's external affairs minister, uh, Jai Shankar, said that the world must not countenance that political convenience determines responses to terrorism, extremism, and violence. So, in other words, perhaps a reference to Canada's, uh, India's accusations that Canada traditionally or over the years has been soft on Sikh extremism in this country. Uh, Here's what the External Affairs Minister had to say a little bit later in an interview that was recorded with the former U.S. Ambassador to India, Kenneth Juster. Juster. Uh, One, we told the Canadians that uh, this is not the government of India's policy. Two, we told the Canadians saying that, look, if you have something specific, if you have something relevant, you know, let us know. We are open to looking at it. So all this playing out in New York at the UN today, where we find Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for your time. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be with you, Ben. Uh, listening to your speech today is always a very passionate um, defense of, of the war, in, at least Canada's aims with the war in Ukraine uh, and Ukraine's need to defend itself against this act of aggression. But meanwhile, back in Canada, of course, a lot going on around this issue and President Zelensky's visit here on Friday. How much of a challenge has that whole episode with the speaker's guests been for you diplomatically right there on the front lines? Are you getting asked about it? Well, we know the Russians will will. Uh, try to have, try to make hay of it, but I, I think, I think we need the confidence to to understand these things. It's an embarrassment, of course, um, but uh, these things pass. You know, other things will happen. Other things come up, and and and, and the Russians will overdo it. You know, because they'll they'll try to turn this into into a. Uh, a gotcha moment, but they won't succeed because the the what's at stake is much much greater and much higher, and so they, we all need to understand that 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 uh, you, you you sometimes I mean I learned from my own experience in government that sometimes things happen that you wish hadn't happened, and people say things or do things that you wish they they hadn't said, and it can have uh, negative consequences. But it, it, these things don't don't last forever because ultimately there's a difference between a mistake 
uh, and a deliberate uh, attack, aggression, attack of aggression. And, and there's a difference between, uh, you know, the wrong person being in the wrong room and the, at the wrong time, and then something as major and dramatic as the, as the war in Ukraine. The Russians will try to will try to use it as a, on a sort of phony equivalency thing, but it's, you got to learn how to fight back on that stuff. Um, you know, there really is a difference between uh, a, 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 an invitation that was wrong and somebody who shouldn't have been there and uh, it should not have happened, and uh, an, an attack on Ukraine in which tens of thousands of people are killed. Uh, and a continuing assault and attempt to destroy an entire country. So let's let's get a grip here. I mean, let's let's put it in perspective. Let's put it in some perspective, anyway. I guess it will have come as no surprise then just how quickly Russia and its proxies, right? Don't forget, social media can be uh, can be a strange oh, yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, you know, just no, right away totally jumped jumped on this. Yeah. I mean, and, and and a lot of it is, I mean, a lot of it is just propaganda. But some of it, there is there is some sincere upset. I mean, the polls. Obviously, the Jewish community uh, is going to respond very strongly to what's happened. But but I, I think as well, it's just important for people to to try and understand how these things happen, and and then to say that's not that's not the be all and end all of the conversation. The speakers paid a heavy price, and uh, and it's it's now important for us to, to get back to the business of focusing on the, on the real is, the real issues. I mean, Pre- President Zelensky's trip was a huge success. I mean, by any stretch of any definition, his trip to Canada, his trip to the United States, his trip to the United Nations, it was a very, very strong uh, week for him, um, recognizing the challenges that, that he faces and that his country faces, which are every, you know, every bit as big as they've always been. You know, they're fighting for survival. Diplomatically speaking, do you think it would help at all if the prime minister were to say something here? I know ultimately, if we look at what the speaker's role is and who would have extended this invite and so on, it's not really uh, up to the PMO, although there's lots being speculated around that. But would it help diplomatically, do you think, if the prime minister were to stand up and say something unequivocal about this to try to counter some of the disinformation, or at least some of the some of the news we've been coming seeing coming out of uh, out of Russia and proxies these past few days? Well, that's a decision that he'll make. But I, I would say this is that, again, you, you, I think everybody has to understand the universe in which we're operating, which is exactly as you described it. It's a universe of cyber attack. It's a universe of disinformation. It's a universe of misinformation. Uh, and it's a very, very tough universe in which we're all supposed to operate. And, and because of the nature of social media, as you know, I'm on Twitter, uh, you, you look at it and say, it's not as if all these opinions are equal or of equal value. You don't even know who some of them are. They're not, we, we tend to think like in our heads, we imagine there's a person behind this, this tweet or this message. Uh, but there usually isn't a person behind this. It's just usually a, a random bot of some kind who's just been put into battle by, um, by people who are organizing these things. This is a highly organized attack. I mean, one thing one does have to know is that um, as in every everything in politics and in a lot of things, uh, sports, it's the self-inflicted wounds that are the most hard to bear. And yeah. And yet and yet you just have to you have to say, okay, that's happened now. How do I play the next how do I play the next uh, the next round? And that's that's the way you have to think of it. You're you're in a constant battle or duel 
uh, where you you really have to focus on the next shot. You can't focus on the last shot. If you keep focusing on the last shot, you'll never get anywhere. And quite honestly, I've talked about this with the PM over the years because of his his interest in you know in boxing and also his his interest in in being a good politician. Um, and we've talked about it a lot is the importance of resilience, and he has a ton of resilience, and nobody should underestimate it. Yeah. I mean, it's been it's been. Uh, we'll talk about some of the other things that have been going on, but just overall, because I know President uh, President Zelensky obviously made his appearance at the UN General Assembly this time around. There was a lot of talk about uh, about the Security Council and so forth. You delivered uh, words today to the effect of you know condemning Russia's aggression once again. Um, how do overall? How do you think the momentum for Ukraine's support is right now in the international community, given where you sit? I think the. The support from the alliance that's been supporting him militarily is still very strong. I think the real challenge is the longer the the issues of development and the humanitarian issues um, uh, keep going, uh, the the more it will require additional response from from uh, from the West in order for us to be able to deal with the the uh, the consequences. I think the the in, impact, the economic impact of this war on the globe is far more far more significant in uh, in in deal, dealing with the equation of what what do different countries think than you know what's happening militarily in Ukraine, which is a preoccupation of the NATO countries and others that are supplying and supporting Ukraine. But I think the big picture really is. Uh, You can see the anxiety on the part of a lot of countries which are going through a very rough time, partly because of the Ukraine war, partly because of COVID, partly because of climate change. But all these factors together create a a very tough uh, situation for countries. And we we in the more advanced economies are going to have to step up more Um, of that, I am convinced. And I say that at a time when many, many governments are are uh, pulling in because they're concerned about their deficits and their debts and their overall situation. But we need, we really need to understand that this is, this is a global uh, situation that we need to respond to much, much more effectively. Uh, You did obviously bring up the issue of foreign interference. Uh, Some Indian media took it as sort of targeting them directly, but I gather, I'm not sure that was necessarily the case. If you know the whole story, there's more than just India at play here. Yeah, I think we're, you know, I, I think if you watch the, the speeches of both uh, Foreign Minister Shankar and my comments, I think you'll see two uh, individuals who are trying to talk about a subject diplomatically and send some signals. But I think the overall signal between both speeches was, look, if, if, you, don't, if you don't attack us directly, we won't attack you. And we're not interested in escalating this. We, 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 we'd want to figure out a way to deal with the problem, which is a specific issue which we've raised. They have issues they want to raise with us. Fine. Let's figure out a way to do that without getting into a huge rhetorical battle. And I think I think that's the way we, we're trying to handle it. We'll see how well we succeed. But uh, that's certainly the way I, I'm looking at it from a New York perspective. And uh, that's that's the way I think we should try to try to portray it. For listeners who don't know, of course, Bob, you have a long history with this topic. You know this subject so well from your work with the Air India uh, tragedy and so forth. Uh, what do you make of just where this conversation has landed between our two countries now? Because it feels like it's it's in very delicate diplomatic territory. 
It is. I mean, it's tough. It's been going. This challenge has been going on for a long time. As we, as we, as we, our um, my, immigration from India really expanded in the late sixties, and um, obviously that's at the same time as there were increasing tensions in India uh, around uh, uh, Sikh nationalism and uh, activities of the Indian government and so on. I'm not going to get into a whole. You know, detailed history. history yes, indeed. Yeah, but we need, but we need to understand that um, th- this is not a new issue. But what we also need to understand is that there are, have been in the history certain key flashpoints. Obviously, Air India was a huge, huge issue, uh, and it took it took us a long time to kind of come to grips with it on both sides to understand the the nature of it. But I think the thing that's important to realize is that there are a couple of points of principle here that um, can. Uh, trigger things. One is this issue of foreign interference. You cannot have a situation where people are coming, uh, traveling to the country in an official capacity or hired by officials and engaging in in, uh, illegal activity in Canada of any kind. That's the first point. The second point is that there, there should be no doubt in India's mind that we support the territorial integrity of India. We do not support uh, separatist cause in India. We don't, it's not the policy of the government of Canada, never has been, never will be. But we have, a, we do have laws protecting freedom of speech. So we, we have to deal with this question of how do we manage all of these aspects of the relationship. But obviously now we're at a, we're at a flare point and we need to, we need to deal with that. But in the meantime, all kinds of ways in which we've connected with Indian society and in which we're large players in, in terms of the Indian economy and other things that are going on. And I don't think any of us want to want to endanger, frankly, endanger that um, because it's important for us to maintain those ties and those connections. Yeah. Well, Bob Ray, as always, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Take care. Today, and this will come as no surprise to anyone listening today, um, with the cost of food and housing and nearly all essentials on the rise, food banks are becoming uh, increasingly vital for families and others right across the country. New research by Food Banks Canada shows 43% of Canadians feel financially worse off compared to last year. 43%. 18% are facing food insecurity. Trisha Johnson is with the Ottawa Food Bank. Last year, our network received 403,000 visits to over 100 agencies across Ottawa. This year, we're expecting to have those visits uh, reach almost 500,000. Yeah, I mean, and that's the same story being repeated again and again and again in communities across the country. So Food Banks Canada today published their first poverty report card, grading provinces, territories, and federal government on food insecurity rates, housing costs, social assistance levels, and more. It won't be a surprise that near everyone got a pretty bad grade. Um, Canada overall received a D plus. Quebec scored the highest with a B minus, C minus for Manitoba and PEI. BC had a D plus, D for Alberta and Saskatchewan, D minus for Ontario, New Brunswick, and Newfoundland and Labrador, F for Nova Scotia. Uh, it's pretty damning. It's pretty damning. Kristen Beardsley, Beardsley rather, is the CEO of Food Banks Canada, and she joins me now. Kristen, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Well, this is not the report card. Report card you want to bring home to your uh, bring home from school, is it? I mean, it's it's uh, it's pretty. It's it makes for some pretty. I wouldn't call it grim reading, but pretty sobering reading. 
Yeah, this isn't, you're not getting um, great grades across the board. Um, our best, our best is Quebec and they're in the B range. So um, there's no one hitting it out of the park in terms of poverty right now. Right. When we look at Canada wide, it's a D plus. So that suggests what, what the country got, what different areas of the country got. But where are we? I mean, I guess I should ask you what you monitored, measured first, because it'd be interesting to know how you came up with the grade. Yeah, we looked at a lot of different measures. So lived experiences of poverty, for example, we also looked at um, you know, measures in place, public measures around poverty, material deprivation, how people were materially deprived, but they didn't have access to, as well as legislative progress. So those regions of the country that are doing a great job versus those that have not introduced new legislation to address the issues around poverty in quite some time. You know, I don't think it comes as a surprise to anyone that a lot of people are feeling, feeling a, you know, a pinch would be to put it mildly these days. Some of the numbers that you came up with on the amount of money people are spending on just putting a roof over their heads and, and, and maybe not even enough food on the table. Yeah, I mean, what was really shocking to me in the report was the number of people across Canada who are saying now that they're worse off financially than they were a year ago. So we're not seeing things get better. And then, as you said, the number of people who are spending more than 30% of their income on housing is shocking. And that, you know, that it ripples into other areas when you're when you're in that level of core housing need, when you're when you don't have buffer in your budget, you know, your car breaks down, which is essential for you to get to work, that throws you off or, you know, just any little piece of your budget goes out of whack. Um, you don't have room for it. And so it's a it's a pretty stark number to read. Yeah. And it was interesting looking at the different provinces because almost, I mean, all the big provinces you could think of, and you mentioned that Quebec uh, scored a bit higher, but mostly D's for BC, mm-hmm. Ontario, a lot of D's. There were a lot of D's in there. And I was a bit surprised by that. I would have thought um, that some provinces would have been better at this. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. And we, you know, the methodology is sound. We didn't go in with a, an assumption around which scores we were giving out. We really let the methodology drive the scores, the the marks we were giving out. And so, yeah, I mean, what I would say is that it's largely being driven by stagnation. Um, there's a lot of talk about the affordability crisis. There's a lot of talk about how the costs of everyday things are affecting, um, you know, everyday folks across the country. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of concerted action at the government level, whether that's territorially, provincially, as you say, federally. We're not seeing the action we need to see to to get that mark up. Yeah. And as you point out, oftentimes when that happens, it's those who were already living, uh, you know, living precariously who then end up getting, you know, bearing the brunt of this. Exactly. Um, And it's, you know, a lot of the legislation we've seen has been aimed at people of higher income brackets. But what governments need to understand is that people, vulnerable Canadians, folks who, as you say, are precarious, are really, really struggling right now. We're seeing it at the doors of food banks. And, you know, we're we're the canary in the coal mine. We see people at the doors of food banks before they show up in any federal stats or data. And we're seeing people come to our doors who have who never thought they would have to turn to a food bank in their lifetime. Um, and so, you know, it's not, this report is really not about pointing fingers or laying blame. It's really an offering to governments. It's saying, we we need to see food bank use come down across the country. And here's a roadmap for each government on how to do it. Yeah. I mean, even where I am, I've noticed for the first time there there is a lineup. 
at mm-hmm. the food bank. I mean, and a significant one. Uh, and, and that, and these are not. This is not the food bank. This is like church organizations that give away food twice a week. There are now lineups at these, and this involves young, old, anything you can name. New Canadians, people have been here for a long time. I mean, it's just it's it's become. I think it's become a visible crisis to a lot of us. One can understand that policymakers are having trouble keeping pace with how much inflation has gone up in the past little while and the cost of living. But but you found on a policy side too that it's not working out as well, that there just haven't been there hasn't been a quick enough reaction to the reality for a lot of Canadians right now, uh at their you know, where they are. Exactly. And what we're seeing is that, you know, we were heading into the pandemic, even with elevated food bank use. So we haven't been investing in social policy. We haven't been investing in income supports for a long time. That's catching up now with the cost of everything. And so we need governments to take action on both sides. So we need, you know, um, social assistance rates to come up. We need EI to be reformed. Employment insurance does not um, match the labor force and the workforce that we've got today. It was made for the labor force of the 90s. We need, and then we need to tackle the affordability side. We need um, investments in things like affordable housing so that folks have a chance um, to get through. Yeah, Nova Scotia, uh, surprisingly, I mean, I was a bit surprised that anyone got an F because that is, you know, that's as bad as it gets. What, what, what what is it about Nova Scotia that uh, had that come into place? Because uh, it feels like I mean one might not expect that if you were to ask people to guess about where the, what these grades would be. Yeah, no, and again, it's it's it was a shock to us as well in some ways. But what is really driving um, the the failing grade in Nova Scotia is. Uh, a stagnation. Things are really bad. The food insecurity rate is very high in all of the Atlantic provinces. Um, but in Nova Scotia in particular, there just hasn't been any sort of government response. People are really, really struggling. We're seeing that with the food banks. And we we don't see government action in place at all. So that's that's the reason for the F in Nova Scotia. So this report card is out there. I think it... Uh... You know, it's not that people didn't understand that this was the situation, but I, even I, I mean, I saw the notice that it was coming out today. I wouldn't, I would have expected a C, not a D. And here we are with a D plus. Um, what would you like to see done with it? Well, what I, what I want is for governments to take action. I mean, we built this because we were, we were advocating. We wanted a, a tool that allowed us to say, "Hey, where, who's doing a really good job that we can say?" Um, share with other provinces? Where are things moving forward that we want to be able to bring to other jurisdictions? And so there wasn't a tool out there. So we built it ourselves. It's been it's been quite a lot of work over a number of years to get to this point. And really, what I want to say is that this is, as I as I mentioned, an offering to government. This is, we're not just coming to the table with the problem. We're not just saying that food bank use is the highest it's ever been, though it is. But we're also coming with the the path forward. We have seen um, policies that have made differences in other provinces or federally, and we know what success can look like. And so what we're proposing is real actionable policy solutions for the governments that are in place. So we've, we looked at the policy environment for the governments that are currently elected, and we propose what we believe are truly realistic policy recommendations that can help you know, millions of people across this country to move out of poverty. 
I noticed that Quebec sort of got higher grades uh, mm-hmm. for food insecurity, for social assistance. Uh, is that is that? I mean, obviously it's expensive, right? Quebec does spend a lot of money on on its social programs, but I, I gather there's no way around that. I mean, that's 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 it. We're, governments are going to have to spend money to make sure that people in their province don't find themselves facing the sort of poverty that we're discussing tonight. Yeah, but I would say that these are good investments, yes, right? These yeah. are, you know, these are investments in the future of the country. These are making sure kids have food on the table so that they can thrive at school. This is people moving out of poverty um, and able to enter the workforce. I mean, we if we think of these only as costs, we aren't seeing the other side of the equation with the in, which is the investments we're making in the future of our of our nation. And you know, Quebec is re- a really interesting example. It was a lot of previous governments. They were the first province to introduce a poverty reduction strategy. They got on chi- affordable childcare before anywhere else, and that's we're seeing that reflected in their in their better food insecurity rates and and other measures. And so it really does have an impact on on real people's lives when you make investments in this way. We can't only think of these as costs. We have to understand these are investments in our future as a country. I know these are federal programs, but uh, with a daycare, a national daycare program in in the offing, uh, a dental program, uh, sort of mm-hmm. getting up and going. Are you seeing any any signs that this may be? I mean, we I know that it takes a long time, as you were mentioning with Quebec, it takes a while for these programs for the impact of these programs to be felt. Are you seeing things moving in the right direction at this point? I mean, it's hard right now, given how how much everything is costing. I'm not sure we'll be able to. Truly measure the impact, but we know affordable. We advocated for affordable childcare um, for years before it was passed federally and, and moved out at the provincial level. We know that will have an impact not only on um, families' ability to afford everything, but women's involvement in the workforce. Um, we know things like um, the Canada Child Benefit had an impact on the number of kids using food banks, for example. So these policies, they're tested and they, you know, we know that they work. Um, what we're seeing right now is just the the level of, um, of cost increase and the depth of need is not allowing us to see progress on a lot of fronts right now. Well, Kristen Beardsley, thank you so much for uh, for sharing the details of that report card. It makes for, I mean, again, it makes for pretty sobering, but important reading, I'd say. Well, thank you so much for letting us share the information out to your public. This is a really interesting story. Um, American astronaut Frank Rubio of NASA and his two Russian crewmates are scheduled to return to Earth early Wednesday. In fact, I think they're getting ready to sort of get ready to go in the next few hours. And they're supposed to land in Kazakhstan sometime overnight Pacific time, early morning Eastern time. Uh, They've spent more than a year in space. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Rubio, Sergei Prokipyev, and Dmitry Petelin launched to the ISS on a Soyuz rocket last September 21st. So do the math, more than a year ago now. And they were supposed to return six months later, which is normally the way it is. But their Soyuz sprang a leak in December. It lost all of its coolant and was deemed unsafe to fly home. So not only did they have to wait for another empty craft to arrive, which it did last February, they also had to wait for another crew, another Soyuz to be ready to carry the replacement crew to the ISS. That happened on September 15th. So now Rubio and his crewmates can finally come home. Add it all up, 
371 days, 371 days on the International Space Station. And that makes Rubio the NASA astronaut with the longest single space flight, surpassing the 355 days held by Mark Vanderhey. Now, the record is for cosmonaut Valerie uh, Polyakov, who spent 400, 437 days. I remember this from the 90s. He spent 437 days aboard the Soviet Russian Mir space station from January 94 to March 95. Still, as NASA and other space agencies embark on these missions, like the Artemis mission that we've talked about a lot on the show, to orbit and then land on the moon with designs on eventually going to Mars, what is the impact of spending that many continuous days in space? And what is being done to try to better prepare and protect those who will make those very long journeys? Well, Rachel, Rachel Seidler is a professor in applied physiology, kinesiology, and neurology at the University of Florida, and she works with astronauts on exactly this stuff, and she joins me now. Rachel, thanks so much. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ben. What a cool gig that you have. Tell me a bit about what you do with astronauts in terms of just trying to adapt their bodies and their brains to life in space. Sure. I study how uh, the human brain and behavior change when people go to the microgravity environment. There are some kind of direct mechanical effects on the body, and then there are also some interesting adaptive neuroplasticity effects as People learn to move in this environment for which we did not evolve. Indeed. Uh, we know that Frank Rubio is going to be returning after a record time for a NASA astronaut, at least, in space, uh -huh. more, than a, more than a year. That is an awfully long time. What kind of impact does that have on the body and on the brain? So um, it seems that the effects of being in space for about a year are somewhat similar to what we see for people who have gone for six months. Some of the changes are a little bit greater, but some are about the same. And in terms of the brain, we see some interesting changes in brain structure where uh, if you imagine on Earth, we have gravity pulling all of our bodily fluids down towards our feet, but we have evolved different systems to keep the fluid circulating throughout our body. You know, we have one-way valves. Um, when our muscles contract, that pushes fluids up. And, of course, the heart pumps blood up. And in microgravity, you don't have gravity working against those systems. So you, a, a lot of the bodily fluids shift towards the upper body. And um, there's even a, a fluid shift within the skull itself, which causes the brain to sit a little bit higher in the skull. Um, and the top of the brain can get a little bit compressed um, against the the tissues that are at the top of the brain. Well, I mean, clearly, I, we were actually doing something about jellyfish yesterday. I know this, this is completely unrelated, but how well adapted they are after you know hundreds of millions of years to their environment. Humans, too, are well adapted to life on Earth and not so much to life uh, in microgravity, as you put it. When one comes back, as Frank Rubio will be doing, what sort of impacts do they have when they come back? What happens to the body when you come back to Earth, so to speak? Sure. So um, one of the main things that people have to deal with when they first come back are a few weeks of difficulties with balance and, and moving around. And that's because this vestibular system, which is the small balance organ in your inner ear, um, on Earth, it actually works to leverage gravity. So if you tilt your head to the side, gravity pulls on the fluid in your inner ear, 
and uh, it eventually signals the brain that your head is tilted. But when people go to microgravity and they tilt their head, they don't give those same signals or cues to the brain. And that initially when people go to microgravity can cause space motion sickness from this uh, sensory conflict, but they learn to adapt to it over time. And then likewise, when they return to earth, people have to readapt to being in earth's gravity. So it can initially be difficult to maintain your balance. Um, there can be a little bit of uh, motion sickness as well when moving the head uh, initially back in Earth's gravity as well. Right. I, I, I gather, I mean, this I mean, this is a completely non-scientific comparison, but it's a bit like getting off a roller coaster. Your body's still kind of moving, right? It's, it's right, something you've right. done something to yourself that is causing a motion that your body isn't used to. Sure. Yeah. It can take a few weeks for people to readapt to the sensation of being back in gravity after being in microgravity for a prolonged period of time. What about the muscles and, and things like that? I suppose it's somewhat the same. I know I know they, there is a regimen, and I'm, I, I don't know how much you're involved with this, but I know that uh, people in the International Space Station obviously are keenly aware of these these impacts and try to mitigate them as much as possible while they're there. Yes, there are different exercise systems on the International Space Station. So people can ride a stationary bike or they can even run on a treadmill if they're held down on the treadmill with bungee cords. Otherwise, of course, they would float away um, right. just when they step on the <laughs> treadmill. Um, there are also strength training systems up there because otherwise uh, there would, you know, astronauts would lose muscle mass and bone density. We don't really think about it, but every time we stand up and walk around on Earth, we're standing, again, against the, the pull of gravity. So our muscles are contracting to re uh, resist gravity. Gravity is loading our bones every time we take a step. And so uh, on the International Space Station, astronauts, if they're not exercising a couple of hours a day, are going to lose substantial amounts of bone mass and muscle mass. So just being is a workout, so to speak. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. it, it is reparable, obviously. Right? I mean, the way you put it, this, this is the body does, in fact, the body and the brain recovers from all of this. Uh, they do, but it can take quite an amount of time. So some of these brain changes that we see are not resolved even um, after people have come back to Earth for a year. Some of these fluid shifts and brain position shifts. And I was initially very surprised by that, but then on reflection, it seems like it actually might not be a good thing if you came back to earth and your brain kind of immediately plopped back down <laughs> right. in the skull and, and these fluids kind of came whooshing out of your skull. Um, it, you know, if that happened rather suddenly or acutely, it might almost be like a traumatic brain injury. So I think it makes sense that these things recover very slowly. Uh, Rachel, we know we're, we've been talking about it. Obviously, Canada's uh, heavily involved in the Artemis uh, project, uh, the Artemis mission. There, We are planning much longer journeys into space, and clearly that's going to be a whole new sort of kettle of fish, so to speak, when it comes to how to protect astronauts, their brains and their bodies on these very long journeys. Yes, and um, I think this is why NASA is trying to have people stay longer on the International Space Station, 
so we can study the physiological impact on the body so that we are better prepared when people travel, for instance, to Mars, which, um, you, you know, current reference design missions involve over a year of travel one way, not to mention the time spent either orbiting Mars or perhaps landing on Mars and then returning back to Earth. You mentioned earlier that that as far as we can tell, the difference between six months on the International Space Station and a year isn't actually that significant. I guess many of the physiological changes are happening fairly quickly, and then we kind of adapt to it. Uh, are, is there any indication that it might be the same if we go even longer? For instance, I guess the Mars and back could be more than two years. Right. And this is still an open question, and we don't really know. Um, you know, initially, people were traveling to space for not very long, even during the uh, NASA space shuttle era, people were traveling just for a few weeks at a time. So it's really only in the last several years that people have been spending six months or in a handful of cases, approximately a year on the International Space Station. So we still really don't know what the full impact will be. The other thing that crews traveling to Mars We'll have to contend with this greater exposure to space radiation. And um, uh, there's a lot of great science being done to better understand the impact that this will have on the brain and the body and how to protect people from this. But of course, Ben, a lot of this research is not done on humans on Earth because we don't want to unnecessarily expose people to radiation. Um, so a lot of this research is done with rodents. Um, or even rodents flown in space. And we're learning a little bit about how it impacts the brain and behavior, but it will still be something of an open question as to how it will impact humans in space. Yeah, because you wrote an article where you mentioned that the amount of radiation, the continuous exposure to the, to the radiation that an astronaut traveling further than the ISS might, uh, might be exposed to is something between 150 and 6,000 chest x-rays. That's a lot of, I mean, that's a lot of radiation, I guess. But we're building things to protect uh, astronauts as well. I mean, we're looking into how to shield them, so to speak. Correct. Yes, people are working with different kinds of materials. Uh, for spacecraft design that might protect the crew, as well as different um, nutraceuticals, so things that people could eat or drink that might help the body better deal with the physiological effects of space radiation. And this work um, also has exciting applications on Earth for people that might be undergoing radiation treatments for cancer. Right. I, I guess so much of it, I mean, when people point out how much we've learned from space programs over the years that applies back on Earth, it's it's fairly it's fairly astounding, isn't it? It really is. Yes. There's all kinds of new products and devices and even water treatment systems, um, solar panels, all kinds of interesting things that uh, benefit human life and human health on Earth. How much of a barrier then do you think the just the sheer physiology of it? Because for a long time, it felt like we were going to stop sending humans into space. It felt like we were just going to do this. We didn't need them anymore. We could use robots. We could use many other things other than humans to do this to do this work. Although I guess there's always that added dimension when you have humans doing it. But but there are obviously risks. Yes, Ben, there are certainly risks, although, um, you know, I really 
am an optimist and I'm, I'm very excited about exploration of space. I think that humans are very explorative by nature. If you think about how we have explored our own planet and uh, going to other celestial bodies is just, in my view, the next step. Um, so I, I think there are risks, but they are controlled risks that uh, people are learning how to address and mitigate. And, um, you know, certainly some people argue that uh, is it really worth it to send humans into space when we could send robots or, or rovers or things like that? But, it, you know, there's also been a history of, of some of these uh, rovers, robots, telescopes and so on. Uh, going awry or not mm -hmm. working as they're supposed to when they land at their intended goal. And so I, I think there are really some things that require a, a human in the loop, so to speak, uh, in terms of accomplishing exploration of space. Yeah, new frontiers. Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. It's my pleasure. Who are those pleasant old men? It's BTO. They're Canada's answer to ELP. Their big hit was TCB. That's how we talked in the 70s. We didn't have a moment to spare. Hello, Springfield! We're going to play all your old favorites. But first, we'd like to dip into our new CD. Taking care of business! Don't worry, sir. We'll get to that no one. No talking! No new crap! Taking care of business now! Yeah, you know you've made it when you get your own star turn on The Simpsons, right? So BTO, Randy Bachman there, of course. Uh, he certainly didn't need that for validation. The Winnipeg-born rocker is one of Canada's most successful musicians and songwriters ever, racking up, I mean, it was a boatload of hits between uh, the late 60s into the mid-70s with the Guess Who and then, of course, with Bachman-Turner Overdrive, including tracks like American Woman. We've talked about that. You ain't seen nothing yet. These Eyes, Undone, Taking Care of Business, Hey You, Rolling Down the Highway, Let It Ride. The list goes on and on and on. I didn't actually know the exact numbers, but he counts something like 120 platinum, gold, and silver records uh, over that time and has sold more than 40 million records over five decades in the business, nearly six at this point, which is astounding. Well, last week, ahead of his birthday tomorrow, it's a milestone he didn't really want to talk about. I spoke to him a little earlier in the day, by the way. He didn't really want to talk about it, but he was born in Winnipeg in 1943, so you can do the math. He announced on social media that he was resurrecting BTO and hitting the road. So BTO bassist and lead vocalist Fred Turner will be taking part, as will his son Tal Bachman, who you may remember from, he's had some big hits of his own, um, She's So High being one of them. Um, and they're heading out. Randy, Fred, and Tal are already writing and recording new songs and planning tours around the world. A BTO concert movie filmed all the way back in 1976 is slated for release in 2024, as is a double live album also recorded in 1976 at Tokyo's famous Budokan Arena, which you'll remember from one of my favorite records as a child was Cheap Trick Live at Budokan. So this would have been just a few years before that. BTO Live at Budokan. That sounds absolutely amazing. They've already played their first BTO concert. They were, get this, in West Springfield, but Springfield, Massachusetts. Hello, Springfield, right? Uh, the Simpsons episode. Harken back to that. And they're getting set for a whirlwind 2024 and it is my great pleasure 
to welcome Randy Bachman to the show. Randy, thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, some big news recently. I mean, the band is back together, back out on tour already. What was uh, what, what was the decision behind that? It's uh, it's exciting to see the BTO name back out on back out there again. Just the way um, the way things have evolved in the last shutdown of COVID. Um, people retiring, people passing, uh, people getting ill and not wanting to tour again. Um, evolution of concerts being wanted again. Everyone's sick of online stuff. Everybody's sick of Spotify. Everyone's sick of computer music. Everybody wants 60s and 70s rock and roll where real guys are playing real music and with mistakes. You know right. what I mean? Like, and, and sharp and flat vocals like they used to be. Um, kind of a, re- a return. And so many bands of my era are now celebrating either last year or this year or maybe next, their 50th anniversary of their big blossom year of 74, 75, 76. It's just like, it's unbelievable. And if you're still alive and doing it and you're an entertainer, of course, you live from phone call to phone call. Between phone calls, you're what's called unemployed, right? And when the right. phone rings, oh, yeah, gig, where is it? How much? Yeah, I can come. I have a day off. Yeah, I'll do that. And you go and do that. Can I get two gigs together? Can I get three? Then that's called a tour, right? Um, so uh, and in the middle of it, um, when it started to come out of it a year ago, I started fulfilling dates we had canceled for right. three years. First with my own band, Randy Backman Band. Then with Backman and Cummings. I was touring with Burton Cummings. And then out of it comes... Backman and Backman, because Tal and I started to do YouTubes every Friday for fun because we weren't doing any gigs. And people liked the Backman Backman. They asked us to do an album. So we did the Backman Backman album. It's probably coming out next year. Mm-hmm. In the middle of it all, I got my Lost Scratch guitar back, which had been gone for 48 years. Got that back in Japan, Canada, not this year, but last year. That's a shot as a rock documentary. It's coming out next year. going to be shown at Sundance next spring. And why not BTO? Then all the fans start calling. My brother passed away, my brother Robbie, the drummer. Mm-hmm. And um, suddenly, what's, what's, why not? Let's, people want BTO. Okay, we'll do BTO. And then when they found out about it, people started to, um, the fans were sending in guest list, um, song lists. Right, really? Already. Please don't, please don't just do your hits. Of course, do your hits, but can you do Rock Is My Life? Can you do Welcome Home? Can you do, uh, a blue collar. Can you do a certain song that they really liked? Um, two days ago, we played in Springfield, Massachusetts. It was called the Big E. It's a big state fair, but it's five states. All the states' corner touched this little spot. So Vermont, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maine, they all kind of touched this. And there's 150,000 people a day there. And it's in Springfield, Massachusetts. So for the first time in my life, I could walk out on stage and go, Hello, Springfield. This is like the Sim. This is like the Simpsons. I remember that episode. I remember that episode. It's great. They show me on. It's almost like Spinal Tap. They come on, go hello, Cleveland. Right. Yeah. Every night's Cleveland. Every night's Springfield. So, and when I was was doing that in the middle of the night, and everybody kept saying, you know, everybody here loves the Guess Who. BTO is great. They're all here for BTO, but everybody loves the Guess Who. And in the middle of one of my, and after Not Fragile, big heavy album cut, my my roadie comes on stage. And hands me a piece of paper. So I open this piece of paper and I'm on the mic. So there's a whole bunch of people. I go, well, wait a minute. This just came from somebody in the audience 
do you guys like the guess who audience goes crazy well wow. i used to be in the i used to be in the guess who they go crazy i say well this is from a husband and wife who drove apparently 350 miles to hear their favorite song which was played at their graduation then at their wedding and every year at their anniversary and they're here right now and they want to hear these eyes you guys want to hear these eyes the crowd goes berserk so we played these eyes in the middle of the set and in the middle of it all these couples got up and started waltzing like this was their song, right? Not not just these other people, but all of them. And after a standing ovation, it was really amazing. So yeah. I said to people, okay, you should actually pay double or I should get paid double. You're getting two bands hits. So I do like 15 hit songs. And now we're sneaking in more Guess Who because people want to hear it. And the Guess Who that are out there are a bogus band. Nobody was even born when they were hit songs. So it's a bunch of clone guys touring as the Guess Who. And they, they're like a heavy metal band with long hair and all that stuff. And it's guys earning a living, but it's the wrong living. They're stealing somebody else's living, right? Well, no, no wonder you like being out there with that kind of moment. I mean, it must be incredible when you, because time, I mean, I know time flies, right? Time just flies by. And you get to look out over this crowd and think about the impact that your music has had for more than five decades now, nearly six, de- well, six decades at this point. Uh, it must be quite, quite the feeling. That's quite awesome in a way. Um to go and play for strangers, uh, in the because all my stuff is, let's face it, it's like from 68 to 78, basically. And then I say, okay, now we're going to update the show. And this guy was here, and the, they show a picture of Tell when he was two playing drums. Right. And this guy was here through the whole thing. And now I turn the mic over to him, and the Tell does She's So High, which is only about 10 years old. And everybody goes crazy because it suddenly it brings our show forward three decades, like into the 90s, right, or the 2000s. And she's so high, still getting played in all the radio stations. And all the women love that song. And so everybody goes crazy over that song as well. So it's it's really a lot of fun. Randy, it was, a, I mean, this is just following your social media feed. It was a tough year, right? I mean, you lost some people that were really close to you. And it felt like, um, you know, the band going back out, especially with Tal, was kind of, in some ways, not only something that you wanted to do for yourself and for the fans, but also as a tribute to, to just BTO itself and what it had been over the last 50 years, as you mentioned, nearly. Well, we were lucky enough in the past couple of years to find the BTO movie that was shot in 1976 in film. Somebody contacted me about 10 years ago and said, we have all this stuff in storage, 62 canisters of film shot of BTO, where our opening lack was Bob Seger in the States, Thin Lizzy in the UK, Wow. And the Scorpions in Germany, our world tour. And after it, we went to Japan for six days. We have all this film. What do we do with it? Okay, I'll pay for it. Oh, it costs $18,000 in storage. So I had to pay for that. And now we got want to restore it and make it HD. And so the BTO movie is now done. It's incredible. Us playing live in all these places was incredible. And um, I also got offered... BTO Live at the Budokan in 1976, 18 songs wow. done live that are going to be mixing in November. I'm just getting my home studio done now. And everybody wants everything to sound like the 70s. The new Stones album, the greatest critique it's getting is it sounds like the Stones in the 70s. So I'm Mr. 70s. I'm going to come back, going to do a BTO album. I've got all my gear and everything. I've still got the same guitars and everything. And Turner's helping us with it. He's in Winnipeg but we're sending songs back and forth. And so we're creating a new BTO album for release sometime, maybe next year. But the big pressing thing for next year is BTO Live at the Budokan 
and the, maybe this BTO movie coming out and the movie of me recovering my lost scratch guitar, which is a rockumentary that's going to premiere at uh, Sundance this coming spring. And so I got my guitar back after all that period of time. And this guitar is famous. Yeah. Because I wrote and played these eyes laughing undone, shaking all over, taking care of it. All the hits were written and played on that song on the, re- on the record. Then I lost the guitar. It was stolen. And now I got it back. So there's a couple of things that are happening next year that are really gigantic milestones for me, 40th or 50th. It'll be the 55th year of anniversary of American Woman being number one album and single. And then four years after that, you ain't seen nothing yet being a number one uh, single and the Not Fragile album. Yeah. So it's, it's really, it's really shaken. Great. Randy, when you think back to those days now, it must have gone by in, in such a blur because it feels like it happened so, I mean, in the grand, at the time, I'm sure it felt like it was going, it could go on forever, but it must have gone by so quick because there was so much success and it happened in a relatively brief period of time. And you, I mean, it was just, and with two different bands, which had never been done by a Canadian before, uh, it was just looking back at it now, no wonder people love the tunes. Uh, they were great tunes. They are great tunes. Thank you. The uh, my whole my whole caveat of being here is to write memorable songs. Because when I was fourteen or fifteen, I met a guy who knew way more guitar than me, and so he taught me some basics on guitar, a vocabulary, so to speak. And I, and nobody and he was the best guy in Winnipeg, and everybody wanted to talk to him, but he was too busy. So because I was his buddy and used to go and hang out every afternoon with him and skip school and see him learning guitar, then I, that's why I learned guitar they would come to me for guitar lessons. And I'd be basically teaching what he taught me. All Chad Atkins and Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and all the cool stuff that was out at the time. This is like late 50s, early 60s. And uh, he said to me, I said, this 14-year-old kid came, couldn't even hold the guitar. I told him that I wasn't going to give him a lesson because he was useless. He couldn't put his move his fingers. He came back six months later and played Born to Be Wild better than me. <laughs> and he said... He said, there'll always be a younger, faster gunslinger that comes into town. If you're the gunslinger in town, a young guy's going to come. You're Billy the Kid. You're wider. There's going to be a shootout. And guess what? You're going to get shot. Same thing with guitar players. There's always a younger, faster, better guitar player. Listen to me. I keep Every night I play a gig, I play Misty. I play Cry Me a River. I play Sonny. I play Stevie Wonder. You know, uh write hit songs and people will remember so i i i concentrate on writing hit songs whether it's with myself or with burton cummings or fred turner and i've been very lucky that um that's like anything you shoot you throw four four darts at the board or 10 darts you might hit one in a bullseye so i write 10 songs or 12 songs i might have one or two not even bullseyes but close to the center in there so you have a couple of hits an album and that's the way rock and roll goes you never know what your hit's going to be yeah, I mean that, that's that's I mean I I think the first song of yours that I had heard because you know I was born in 1970, so I think it was Hey Louise was the first song Sweet Louise rather oh, was the wow. first song that I had heard because it was on wow. the radio right about the same times that I think Burton Cummings had um strange uh, had had a solo hit too and my parents started to sit me down and say well here's the original band here's BTO here's the lineage of this but I love that track and that because it was the first one I heard but there was a lot of good so well, what, what there are a lot of good songs out there that aren't as big hits. It, it can be a bit random sometimes, can it? Right. Well, I'm surprised you mentioned that song. Nobody knows that song, but it was number one in Italy for 16 weeks. Wow. And I went I went in the late 70s and toured Italy. I was like Elvis. 
had this number one song, it was Sweet Louise, Sweet Louis Louise, Sweet Louis Louise. Yeah. They, they loved it. It was fantastic. So, and I've got a, tro- a you know, a silver record from that, Sweet Louis Louise, number one in Italy for 16 weeks. It was great. Yeah, we'll have to play it. We'll have to play it. Uh, Randy Bachman is with us uh, this hour. We're talking about uh, the upcoming BTO tour. They're actually already out on tour in this reunion tour. Uh, his son Tal is with them, uh, as well as other members of the original band. And uh, there's new music coming out, as he was talking about. There's a Budokan. Is, Randy, is that, a, is that a video or is that an album, the Budokan one? I remember the tre- Cheap Trick one, obviously, from the 70s. Is that That's an album coming out, right? It's an album of it'll be 18 songs. It'll be double or triple vinyl. Because wow. everything's now is really good, heavy vinyl. We're scouring Japan, which is amazing, on the internet, and buying posters of myself from then, from 67, oh, wow. when we were there, to, to be part of the album cover and the artwork. And, and Universal Music also has f- photographed a lot of it. And other people had filmed it. So we're pulling our own video off of YouTube that we didn't know existed. And because of the magic, and I've got to say it's real magic of AI, to get an old song of yours that sounds terrible, and somehow they can separate the bass and the vocals. You can go and rebalance it, or they, they get a thing that's out of focus, they refocus it. Um, I'm we've, We're discovering this every single day now, um, getting and restoring this old stuff because people all want to see that. So we're going to have some amazing stuff coming out next year, visually and and orally. Randy Bachman is with us uh, this hour. We're talking, of course, about uh, BTO. He announced this on social media last week, and they were already out playing a date at this uh, this huge state fair. I mean, it's actually a five-state fair. And he got to say, hello, Springfield, which is amazing. If you've ever seen that episode of Randy in The Simpsons, you'll know you'll know where that, uh, why that's such a great thing. Um, Randy, just tell me what it's like to play with, with Tal, because, of course, when uh, when She's So High came out, I think a lot of us heard it and thought, well, that's very different from his dad's music, right? It's just a different vibe a little bit. And yet, here you are writing and playing together. It must be it must be great to be out on the road. Well, it is, and he um, he's always been there when I needed him. Mm-hmm. When my drummer broke his leg in a motorcycle accident, who do you call? Tal. Like, Tal grew up playing drums when he was two. There's pictures of him playing drums. My brother Robbie's drums out of BTO practice. We'd finish playing. The little kid would get up and play drums. So you show him how to hold the drumstick and stuff. And then he learned to play guitar and piano. So he plays guitar and piano. He's had his own hits. Uh, it's great to be on the road with him. And um, yeah, I mean, he could basically feel he could be the one man band, but we do have the great band. Fred Turner comes once in a while. Yep. Fred's writing songs in Winnipeg right now. And we're trying to create, we're trying to write songs that would be the follow up to what you would want to hear to let it ride or taking care of business. We're going back to the old grooves because the new grooves are not the same. The new grooves are all computer kind of dance grooves. And we want that loose Rolling Stonesy rock and roll thing that you get to the course, it speeds up a little bit or the solo and you speed up and you slow down in the verse. So the song kind of should breathe a little bit. So we're, we're getting that in. We're just doing it naturally because that's, we do it. We yeah. don't have to copy anything. We just got to go and, be ourselves forget everything we've learned and just go back to being 1974 let's try a song let's take the song and make it real bto so you put in chunky guitar crashing drums and maybe you hit the target is that your favorite era of the of the stuff that you wrote and played uh is that the time you were having the most fun with it or was it the earlier period with the guess who uh or was it even later in periods where you listen you know commercial success is obviously how everyone pays their bills but it's not always how you get the most gratification out of the music you're making i feel very lucky to have been born when i was born and witness 
the transition from Sinatra, Patti Page, the big bands, to Elvis that changed everything. And then all the Elvis clones came out. Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran, Rick Nelson, everybody came out. And then, boom, the Beatles came. And then everybody copied the Beatles. And then five years later, boom, the power trio come and it's Cream and Hendrix and, and, and you know, and Zeppelin and stuff like that. And the Who. Uh, I feel very fortunate to have grown through that and to be part of it. And I think the greatest music in the world, looking back from next century, when they look back, would probably be from 1959, 60. So about 79 and then it all stopped then it became disco and it became very mechanical and very computerized they started bringing computer and drum machines and stuff and it lost the human feel and um listening back to an album now you have to be amazed or old songs you have to be amazed at how great aretha franklin sang or elvis there was no auto tune or no pitch correcting they sang in tune louis armstrong he sang in tune. Everybody sang in tune. They were quite incredible. And a lot of them were the first take. You just go in and you sing the song. You had one microphone and one tape recorder. When I recorded Shaking All Over with the Guess Who, we had one microphone and one tape recorder. We set up the drums. We all plugged into one amp. The singer stood close to the mic. We heard the playback. He wasn't loud enough. We said, go closer. The drums are too loud. We moved the drums a foot away. We did another take and said, oh, that's a good one. And we sent it in. It was a hit. One rec- one mic, one room, one tape recorder. The performance is what you what we got. Even shaking all over as it is, there's a couple of mistakes in it. Near the end of the song, we didn't care because the other versions had five or six mistakes. And then you yeah. ran out of time. You booked the studio for an hour or two hours, and you're running out of time. You do your best. You do the song three times. You pick the best one. And it Amazing. comes out, and and it's a hit. Because you talk to so many people today, producers and so on, and they're perfectionists, right? They'll do like 9,000 different different yeah. versions of it and then mix them together. I mean, back then it was just, you're right, it was much more, and it sounded like it too, it's just a lot more organic, right? It sounded right. a lot more real. And I guess, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's a surprise that a whole new generation of music fans are wanting to hear that again. Well, if you go to a, a campfire or a barbecue or a summer camp, Nobody sits around singing rap songs. They all sing the Beatles and the Eagles and the Beach Boys. And maybe the odd guess who song. Do you know what I mean? It, or Neil, everybody sings Heart of Gold, okay? Um, there's something about a really great song that everybody vibes in on. I saw Sting on TV a couple of months ago, and they were asking him about his songs. And he said, there's a, there's a magic in the songs. Uh, they're univer- Paul McCartney said the same. They are universal. If I said to you, what were you doing 20 years ago today? You'd go, what? I have no idea. Well, what were you doing the first time you heard Taking Care of Business? Oh, I was with my buddies. We were in a tractor. He was on a farm. This song came on. We went, yeah, we're taking care of business. And you remember because of the music, you go back. Other than that, you don't remember. Or you walked into somebody's kitchen and their mother's cooking something your mother used to cook and you flash back. The memory goes back to when you ate your mother's pierogies or whatever it was, or, or you know, Irish stew or whatever. Right. Uh, so it's all about... Music and uh, your senses, your your emotions. And that's a great thing about the music, to go out and play 20 hit songs in a night and see everybody from 10-year-olds to 90-year-olds screaming and playing and singing your songs and reliving those moments when they first heard it. It's an amazing, it's a great thing. It's wonderful. It is. I, I know, I know... 
you have a birthday coming up. We don't have to talk about it. I know, I know birthdays sort of vanish, but you have a birthday coming up. It must be great to be able to look back, uh, to be able to celebrate now, still out there, still doing what you love. I mean, as you mentioned, you've lost some people close to you of late. We've lost some great musicians over the past year or so, obviously some great Canadian ones. Uh, it must be great just be able to be able to continue to be able to do what you love to do. I mean, you never get to, you, musicians never retire because it's not a job, it's a calling, right? Yeah, it's just something I keep doing. Like, what would you do if you're not doing what you're doing? Well, I would be dead, right? It's what I do. I get up every day. I mean, I'm sitting at my computer now and I'm playing guitar on a couple of songs. I found some old BTO songs that are pre-BTO that are pretty incredible that are from CBC, but they're mono. And they're terrible. They were on television. They'd be played through a four-inch speaker. Remember, TVs then had one little round speaker. So the, the bass is boosted in them. But when I get these songs back, put them through AI, and they allow you to take the bass track out and control it and take the drum and the vocal, you can rebalance it and, and make your song more audible or more presentable again. So it's really good. Yeah. I, I do. I, and that was how interesting must that be with what you were mentioning it earlier, the YouTube, like all this video of BTO from the past that's now up there that you wouldn't have had access to 30 years ago. And then all these other things that you can now get access to and then fix. It's It must be interesting to be able to go back and take all that stuff and modernize it because that just wasn't the case even, you know, even 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, it wasn't possible. And I thought, I thought myself, like, what good is AI and who needs that? But a couple of things have been presented to me that really, they make sense to restore something. When you've got an old mono track and 80% of it's bass, and there's no way to get rid of that, but when you AI it, it splits it into three or four bands, you can just take that and move it down so it's properly balanced because now we have big monitor speakers and now we're not mixing even for speakers. We're mixing for these little ear pods, things that are this big, yeah. you stick in your ear. You've got to mix for those. So it allows you to readjust or recalibrate your your sound you're not really changing it that much you're not playing anything new you're just rebalancing it for a different ears different monitor system does that so disappoint it's, you it's, at all that that, that that the sort of that audiophile era is sort of done and people listen to most music is consumed in, in in what would have sounded like an am radio 40 years ago yeah well am radio was one thing like it was a little six by nine speaker under your yeah. dash and then one in the door when it went to stereo yeah, but your music now, sounded great. Your music sounded great on that format, though. I mean, that's well, why it was so popular. You, yeah. you end up mixing. When I would do a mix, I would run it to my car and play it on a cassette or on a, C, on a CD in my car. And it's different when your car is moving. If your car is still, your tires are flat on the ground. When it's moving, they're not so flat. So you, you get more more bass end if your car's standing still. Wow. So you would actually go test out your tracks to see how they sounded in a moving vehicle? Go and drive around the block in your car, yeah. With the, with well, the windows down. How many people only listen to and hear music in their car? You don't go home and turn on the radio, you turn on the TV. Yeah. When you get in your car, you turn on the radio. It's either talk radio or it's boom, classic rock or blues, whatever you want. So it's important. Well, wow. uh, Canadian dates. I was noticing the, the first, I think it's the first six or eight BTO dates are, are in the States. And obviously there's big demand there too. Uh, but when, when, are, when might we see you back on this side of the border? You have to keep checking the website because we're now getting calls. When that announcement went out last week, I got emails from Germany, from Sweden, from the UK, from everywhere. That must be great. And, and Canada. Yes. 
So so we'll just keep checking those dates. Well, I mean, it, it must be you've already had the first one, so it was clearly a success because you got to do it in Springfield. So what could be better better for you than that? That must right. be a big thrill to be on The Simpsons as well. I mean, that's that's iconic. That was pretty amazing. I was in a an elite group of rockers on that show. Yeah. Uh, well, Randy Bachman, listen, I, I thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you again. Enjoy the tour. And uh, yeah, if you want to play uh, Louise for me, I'll come and, I'll come to the concert. Great. Okay. Sweet Louise. I think I'll add, I'll add that to the set list. Thank you. I, I wonder if anyone's heard it in a while. Uh, Randy, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.